Have you ever been that kid that tells your parents, I don't need to hear that mom, I don't need to hear that dad, I know what I'm doing. Have you ever been that kid? I have. I spent most of my childhood and adolescence being that kid. When uh, my parents were younger, they didn't have a lot of money. Um, I didn't know that, Uh, and and there are certainly those who who had less than us. but I didn't really understand, I think, how tight things were for my folks financially. Um, I never went hungry, or I, I don't want to misrepresent myself at all, or my or my parents. Um, but I never, went, I never went hungry. I never like, didn't have clothes or shoes or anything like that. I, I I know many of you are picturing like this, like you know, overgrown wheat farmer kid from Kansas running around in overalls and a straw hat and no shoes. Um, and that was true because I wanted it to be true, not because it had to be <laughs> the case necessarily. Um, with a 22 over his shoulder, you know, hunting squirrel for dinner because he was so hungry. Um, that was only true because I wanted to be that kid um, and was that kid for a while, but not because I was so poor. I, my parents couldn't put shoes on my feet. Um, but I, I just have, have kind of always naturally been very arrogant and... Um, very, uh, uh, very arrogant and very self-centered. Very, um, you know, in school I convinced myself that it was confidence, but not cocky, uh, cockiness. It was cockiness. Um, no doubt about it. It was cockiness. Um, some of you are much the same way, and you try to convince yourself that you're confident and not cocky. Um, you're not. You're probably wrong. Most, most of you. Um, but I just, I, I just was really good at kind of getting in my own way and, um, and wasn't very good at listening to instruction. And if you read the Proverbs, one of the things that the Proverbs really did for me was it really taught me to listen to instruction, to obey instruction, to seek to learn things from people. But it's a lesson I had to learn really hard in life um, because I just naturally wanted to kind of get ahead of the process. Part of that comes with being an, an older child. Those of you that are firstborn, um, you, you find that you kind of naturally gravitate to people who are a little bit older, a little bit more mature. Um, you're oftentimes kind of described that way by your parents or by maybe people that are close friends that you spend a lot of time with. You find yourself being described as somebody who you kind of pride yourself on carrying a little bit more mature tone. Um, you, you're not always interested in the frivolity of things, but you just kind of, you, you know, you just, you just kind of naturally carry yourself as a little bit um, a little bit older, a little bit more mature, sometimes a little wiser, uh, and oftentimes you're, you're, you're willing to kind of lord that over your siblings. Um, and uh, so not all that, it's not always true, but generally that plays out pretty true, those of you that are firstborns like, like myself. Um, kind of find yourself pretty confident, usually pretty sure of yourself, usually pretty self-aware, uh, and I was, I, that was that kid. Um, it came to a head. I told you my parents didn't have like a ton of money. So my, my dad um, is a wise guy. He's a really smart guy. Um, and the Lord's really blessed them, both my mom and my dad, financially. Um, and they do some, and one day I'll tell you all of what my dad gets to do. I can't right now, but um, for the sake of time, and, and it's classified, which is awesome. Um, it's still awesome. I'm like almost 30, and I still think what my dad does is incredible. Um, but <clears throat> they do some cool stuff, and, um, and the Lord's really blessed them. But like I said, when, when we were, when I was, especially when I was younger, I have a lot of money, but he, 
he was very wise with his money, and so what he, he didn't have a lot of personal wealth, but he had a lot of skill and a lot of ability, a lot of talent that he had learned from his dad growing up on a farm. And so instead of investing money in mutual funds or 401ks, he did some of that as well. Uh, he invested small amounts of money in, in small um, property, income, like rental houses. Uh, and so we had four or five or I think one time we probably had six or seven different uh, rental houses, and my parents would own those for a while, and there's some tax incentive to doing that, and you kind of have to, you can lose money on it really quickly, but uh, if you have the ability to do work yourself and to fix them and, and you get the right ones, you buy them for the right price, you can, you can fix some of those homes up and you can sell them down the line. They, they'll pay for themselves for a long time and you get some tax incentive, some tax break to do it, and then, then as those homes, uh, as he paid them off, he would sell them and, and you keep the profit, you keep the money. Um, so we spent a lot of time, a lot of my free time was not spent doing things that I wanted to be doing necessarily, but it was spent helping my dad do these rental houses and fix up these different rental houses and get them ready for people. And then as he would buy some and sell some, we would fix them and sell them. And it's kind of what, what we did, kind of on the side. Um, so I'd gotten to the point where I was 11 or 12 years old, and I'd been doing this for a while. Uh, and we were putting siding, uh, we, were, we were putting new siding on a house. You got to just follow with me. I promise I'm going somewhere and I'm going to take you to the scriptures here in a second. Putting uh, vinyl siding on a house. Now, I'd done this once before. I'd helped him kind of finish a project, but I'd never started a project. Uh, and if you've ever done vinyl siding, I'm not going to ask you to show of hands. It's probably embarrassed the one or two of you that maybe have done it, but um, it's pretty easy. Once you get started, it's very, very easy. It all kind of snaps together and you just kind of build it all the way up and you make some cuts here or there. But this house was just, you know, four corners. It was real easy, real simple. Um, and I had read the instructions, <clears throat> and, uh, and he asked me, he said, would you like some help? And I said, no, man, I got it. He said, well, let me just kind of show you, Dad, I got this, right? Well, it's real important, you know, and, and so let me just kind of help you with this one, with the one corner, and I'll get you, I'll help you get started. And I, I, uh, <laughs> I threw the instructions down, and I looked at him, and I said, do you, do you want me to do it or not? I told you I got it. 11, 12 years old, overconfident, cocky, arrogant, right? He says, okay, you're right, I trust you. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, in a rush to do a good job and all that stuff, I totally messed it up, right? I totally, like, totally messed it up. What you have to do when you're putting up this kind of siding is, see, you've got to get everything level all the way around the house first. And once you do that, you put on this starter strip. And once you get your starter strip on and level, then everything just kind of goes up kind of all together. But if you cut corners, if you try to do it really fast, and if you're too prideful and arrogant to ask questions right, and to take advice when it's offered from somebody who's done it before, what happens is you get your starter strip wrong on the first course. And then as you go around the house, it doesn't, it doesn't stay level because it's wrong at the very beginning. And so what you end up with is something like one of those kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not, like things that you, when you look at it just the right way, it kind of looks level on one side, but the other side is completely off. Bottom line, I, I, I um, and because I cut and started doing things and got really far ahead of myself, I wasted about $4,000 worth of vinyl siding. And we had to throw it almost, almost all of it away because of my mistake, because I got ahead of the process. I want to show you a story in the scriptures. Um, it's it's a, actually, it's a pretty frequent occurrence in the scriptures, people getting ahead of the process. It's, it's been 
um, fairly frequent in my life. I fear that it may be somewhat in yours. I want to show you some things in the book of Genesis and then just talk to you about some, some principles, some things that I've done, some mistakes that I've made. And, you know, maybe, maybe if it doesn't fall on deaf ears, maybe it can help some of you as well. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, Genesis, Genesis 16. If you, we'll start there for the sake of time. This is a story about a guy named Abraham, but it's a story about a guy named Abraham before his name was Abraham. His name was Abram beforehand. Okay, so if you, if you know much about the Bible or maybe you don't know a whole lot about the Bible, there's a guy named Abraham. Um, he's kind of important in the whole uh, story of the Christian faith and, and especially of God's chosen people, the people of Israel. Um, and <clears throat> Abraham was the kind of the guy that would, which everything starts. But before he was Abraham, his name was Abram. And God had promised him at the end of, of, of Genesis chapter 15 that his descendants, he's going to make a mighty nation out of Abraham, of Abram, and his descendants, he had, God has him go outside and look up into the stars and into the heavens. And he looks into the heavens and he says, Abram, can you count the stars in the sky? If you can count the number of stars in the sky, that's how many descendants you will have. He's doing it to a point that he's going to give him, he's going to make him the father of, of an entire nation. He's going to give him land and there's all kinds of things, all kinds of promises that are given to Abram. Uh, and and they're huge. They, they really, this starts uh, a thread that, that runs throughout the entire uh, course of history and throughout the entire scriptures. But Abram was getting old and older, and, um, and so was his wife. I'm going to pick up the story in chapter 16. It says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from buried children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall uh, obtain children by her. Okay? So let me just, you know, it's kind of, if you don't know this, the Bible oftentimes is, is PG, PG kind of 13 throughout, and at times it's rated R. Okay? And so this is one of those, like, kind of grayish lines, depending on what era and decade you were born in. All right? So uh, Sarah is Abram's wife, and uh, Sarah is getting frustrated that she doesn't have any children. And Abram kind of is too. Um, and so there was a custom, right? It's a custom that was against, it's against the moral nature of God, okay? Um, but it was, a, it was a custom that was prevalent at the time. Um, you got to keep in mind, <clears throat> the Ten Commandments don't exist yet. Um, God hasn't fully revealed his moral nature. And so, uh, and so there's, a, there's a, a custom that God doesn't necessarily approve of, but he doesn't necessarily prevent. All right, does that make sense, sort of? Um, so Sarah gets frustrated, and she says, here, just take Hagar, who's one of her servants, right? And so this is kind of like, this is kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of um, like surrogacy, sort of, right? So he says, just take Hagar and have sex with Hagar and get her pregnant, and then we're going to adopt that baby. Okay, and so it was up to Abram. Abram could make a pronouncement. Like, if he thought the baby was ugly, he could, it could stay with Hagar, and, and like, nothing, nothing happened, right? Everything stayed the same. If he liked the baby, he could say, this is my son, and it becomes him, his son, along with Sarah. And Hagar's just kind of cut out of the picture. All right, it's a pretty crude practice, and, uh, and, and so you can see why it doesn't really, like, nobody really does this anymore, okay? <laughs> like, just offer it. Like, just, it's just not the way it works. All right, um, <clears throat> So this is, so everybody kind of understand what's happened? All right, verse, uh, ver, end of verse 2. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now, what's Abram supposed to be doing? His, he's supposed to be leading his household, right? Is he leading his household in this, in this particular instance? No, he's not, okay? He's, this is kind of Adam part two, all right? He's taking instruction, and you're going to see that it has some disastrous um, results. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Sarah, guys are shaking their heads going, this doesn't make any sense, okay? Sarah told Hagar, you go sleep with my husband. And told her husband, you go sleep with Hagar. And you guys make a baby. And then they did that. And then she got mad, okay, which doesn't make any sense, but that's what happened. And it's going to get even weirder before it gets better, all right? And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you, right? So it's my fault. I gave my servant to to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. So Sarah's upset that Hagar is upset with Sarah. And Sarah's upset with Abram for being with Hagar. And they're all kind of mad at one another. And so Abram, who totally capitulates, right? He totally just, he's totally just giving it up, right? He's totally abdicated his role of, as a leader and as an authority figure in the home. Like, and he's just totally giving it up, right? So Abram throws up his hands and says, verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Get this problem out of my face. I'm tired of hearing about you. I'm tired of hearing about Hagar. I'm tired of hearing about this baby. I'm, tired of, I'm just tired of all of it. Just, she works for you. Take care of it. Do whatever you want to do. Right? That's basically what he says. Do whatever you want to do. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Okay? So Sarah says, I'm just going to make life miserable for her and get her out of the picture. And we'll just kind of reboot. We'll start over. And they're like 100 years old, just so you know. Okay? All right? The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Okay, so she leaves. She's going back to Egypt where she came from. And, she, and, and so the angel of the Lord found her. Notice this, that the Lord pursues, pursues Hagar. Okay, the Lord pursues Hagar. The Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? By the way, when we wander from God's path for our life, that's oftentimes the voice that you're going to hear. Probably won't be the audible voice of God. You probably won't be that lucky. Where have you come from and where are you going? Good questions to ask yourself most of the time. Where have you come from and where are you going? The decisions that you're making right now, the trajectory that your life's headed on right now, the people that you're hanging with, the stuff that you're surrounding yourself with, the things that you're listening to, the thing, like just the general life trajectory the things that you value, the way that you see the world, the things that you allow to influence you, where have you come from and where are you going? Two pretty important questions, two pretty profound questions, and the answers have pretty eternal ramifications most of the time. She said, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarah. She's being truthful. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the same promise that's given to Abram. Okay? The exact same problems given to Abram, um, but you're going to see very different results. Okay. The exact same promise, but he's not talking about the same people. Okay? And so God's going to keep his promise, 
but not in the way that, that it was initially intended. And the angel of the Lord said, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to you. Ishmael means the God, God who hears, okay, or he who hears, has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against, shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That's a great insult, isn't it? Like, if you're going to be insulted, isn't that, like, the guys in the room are kind of secretly going, yeah, that sounds about right. A wild donkey of a man. If I was going to be insulted and called something, that sounds, that sounds about right. Okay. But it's actually a huge insult. Okay. And, and, and it's a huge pronouncement because what comes of Ishmael and Ishmael's 12 sons um, are, are a collection of people um, who work and actively work against the kingdom of God and God's people um, throughout the course of history, even to this day. Uh, Ishmael <clears throat> settled in what's now known as, as Arabia, okay? um, and, and is considered by many to be the, kind of the, the, the father, the, geneal- the, the genealogical ancestor um, to the Muslim people. Okay? Uh, and so this promise that God had given to Abram Abram and Sarah jump in front of it. They jump in front of God's timing and God's plan, and they start doing things their own way, and it has disastrous consequences, not only for them, for their relationship, but also for the people of God, for, for God's, because God's going to continue to work His promise and His people, and you're going to see that in the next coming chapters. But, but now there's this, there's this new line, this new people um, who God from the very beginning sets apart as, as somebody who's going to work, actively work against uh, the people of God. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. She reveals part of God's nature and God's character, that God sees her. Right? First, she gives him a name to the child, Ishmael, God, a God who hears, and now we see that God is a God who sees who sees her, who knows things about her, knows intimate things about her and about what she's doing, about her, uh, her history and her past, and, and even knows things about her future, knows things about her character, knows things about her intellect, knows things about uh, the questions, the things that she's wrestling with. She's, she's all alone. She's, uh, she's almost, uh, the, the text seems to imply that she's almost dead. She kind of finds this, this, this well, this oasis, and she's her health is, is restored, and now she has restrictions from the God who sees, the God who, who knows her plight. He understands her fear. She's all alone. She's all by herself. She's hungry, and she's tired, and she's pregnant. She's trying to care for this unborn child. She said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Laroi, okay, Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and in uh, in bread, it means the, it's a Hebrew phrase. It means in the middle of or in between. Okay. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son who Hagar bore Ishmael. Adam, uh, Abram was uh, eighty six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, why this story? Well, you know, for for a lot of us, uh, it speaks to kind of where we are in life. It can speak to where we are in life. We can identify with a lot of characters in the story. 
some of you may be able to identify with Abram, or you just kind of feel like you, you know, God's given you a, a God's given you a vision, God's given you a plan, He's given you a calling, and you've abdicated to a certain extent. You've kind of stepped away from it. Maybe you feel like Sarah, and you're a little bit more active, and you 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 get tired and impatient of waiting on God to do certain things or 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 take care of certain problems, and so you're your type A kind of personality, you jump ahead and you, you jump ahead of the process and you take it on for yourself. Maybe you can identify with Hagar in some way or maybe even you can identify with Ishmael. You just feel like you're a victim of circumstance and somebody else's poor decisions. And there's probably lessons to be learned from all those people, but, but the thing that we really need to focus on, the thing that we really learn, that we can really take away from this pasture is, passion is, uh, is who is God? We learn a couple of things that are really really unique and really challenging about God. And that's, God is a God who hears and sees. He's a God who knows us, who cares deeply and intimately for us, who has a plan for all of our life. And, and sometimes the, most, the hardest thing for us to do is just to be patient. It's to wait. It's to trust in the truths and the promises of Scripture. Listen, God will never, ever, ever break one of his promises. Now, you may be confused as to what some of his promises are. Maybe, maybe you've bought hook, line, and sinker into some things that you think God's promised you and he really hasn't. But God will never, ever, ever break a promise. He won't ever violate his character. Some of you are questioning and some of you work and live and, and, and do life with people who who genuinely doubt and genuinely question whether or not God can be trusted. I can tell you from a number of different scriptures and a number of different stories in my life, but from this one, if you look, if you read on what, what God does with, with Abraham, and he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, and he, and he makes a covenant with, with Abraham, and he gives him a son named Isaac. Right? And through Isaac, these generations... Generations of men who shape the course of human history and, and who reveal the character and nature of God, all because ultimately Abram was faithful. He trusted the promises of God and he learned from his mistakes and he learned not to jump ahead of the process. Now ultimately what I had to do with my dad was I had to go to him and obviously I had made a mistake. Several thousand dollars into it, I had realized I had made a mistake. And I had to humble myself and I had to say, Dad, I'm sorry I messed it up. Can you help me fix it? And there wasn't an easy way to fix it. I wish, you know, I was, I don't remember how many courses, I wish I could remember now, five or six or seven different courses up. So, the, you know, maybe half of the wall had been sighted and I stepped back and I went to admire my work and I realized this is a train wreck, it's a disaster. I mean, it just it looks terrible. And I wish there was some way that we could have just left everything the same and just kind of started and finished, but we couldn't. In order, to, in order to construct it right, we had to deconstruct it. All that time and energy and effort and all the money that was spent on all those different courses of studying that were wrong had to take each one of them down. And each one was like stripping away, each course of that siding was like stripping away a little part of my soul. <laughs> it's like just another another layer of pride that was being removed and chipped off from me. And we had to go all the way back to the foundation, all the way back to the very bottom, that starter course. And we had to, we had to, to work hard to make sure that starter course 
was adjusted so it was perfectly level all the way across the building. It was only after we did that that we could start reassembling and reconstructing the siding. Too often we try to, when we find ourselves off of the path that God has for us, we find ourselves trying to find the easy way back. Right? Trying to fix it in one swing at the plate just to try to, 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 try to throw the Hail Mary and, 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 and just close the gap immediately and try to fix everything right now when oftentimes what you have to do is you have to kind of retrace your steps. In order to construct something right, you have to deconstruct some things that you've done wrong. And so I, I want to encourage you tonight to really take stock and evaluate your entire life. Are there some things, there's some areas in your life where maybe you've, you've, you've given up trusting in the one true living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth and created you and who, who laid out per, a perfect plan for your life? Are there some areas where you've jumped ahead of some of those things? Are there some areas where you've cashed in your faith and you said, hey, uh, in this part of my life, I trust you with everything, but in this dating part and this relationship part of my life, I need to control this because I know me better. Think about how foolish that sounds. But is that you tonight? Is that where you are? Hey, you are where you are, right? At the end of the day, you got to step back and look at the house and go, hey, it looks like it's a disaster. When God sent Christ to this earth to live a life just like ours, to go through the temptations and the burdens and to lose loved ones and to experience the full, right, the full gamut of human emotion, the problems and the circumstances and the areas, and the areas of faith where, where we struggle, this is exactly what God had in mind when he, when he sent his son Jesus, when he incarnated himself into us. This is exactly what he had in mind. That we have a God that not only sees us and hears us and, and can love us, but we have a God who understands us. In Jesus, we have, we have a representative, our representative to God the Father. That if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, we have somebody who, who can understand, who can relate, whose faith has been tested, who, whose emotions have been, have been tried. We, we have a God who, who not only sees us and hears us, but a God who relates to us. Don't you understand? It's incredible. That what you have in, in Jesus, it's incredible. There's, there's no other religion that even comes close to, to what we have. Not even come, they just don't come close. So here's what I want to do. The band's going to come, and, and they're actually going to sing that song that we just sang, that beautiful, wonderful, scandalous um, night. And they hadn't planned to sing it again. I asked them to, to, to sing it again. Because it talks about kind of going back to square one, back to the foundation, back to the, that, that one moment where we can all identify that, uh, and we're broken. We're, we're broken. That if we put our own life in our own hands to make our own decisions, the only thing we're going to consistently do is screw it up well, Right? If we take things in our, in our own life, in our own hands, and we just make our own decisions, the only thing we're going to consistently do well is we're going to screw it up. Sometimes the hardest part of faith is just letting go and letting God take over and take control. So I encourage you on a couple of different levels. If you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you don't have any access to any of this stuff I've talked about because you, you've not dealt with the, the, 
the one, the foundational problem to begin with. That's your sin nature. We haven't talked a lot about it tonight, but it's the thing that corrupts everything, every part of who we are. It's that part that corrupts every part of who we are. It's what causes us to rebel against God, against his authority, and ultimately against his plan for our life. And the only way to fix that is by, faith, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. For many of you, you have a relationship with Christ, but I want to just encourage you to take a little bit of stock. We're going to kind of turn the lights down, and, and I'm not, I don't know what I'm asking you to do, but I guess I am asking you to shine a spotlight on every part of your heart, every dark, and, and every dark crevice and corner of who you are, and just see, is there any, ask yourself this one question. Is there, any, is there any area of my life, any aspect of my faith, any part of who I am that I've not given God complete and total control to reign and do whatever he wants? Is there any part of my life where I'm circumventing the process and trying to take things into my own hands? And would I not be better by just let, letting go and letting Jesus deconstruct the mistakes that I've made so that God can build me back into who he wants me to be? Our God is a God who sees our plight and hears our heart. Sees and hears. I encourage you to, to come to tonight. Maybe it means kneeling in your chair. Maybe it means coming to the front. Maybe it means coming and talking to myself or to Chris or Abby or Victor or Clarence or any of the other men or women that are here tonight. Maybe it means just praying silently with a friend. Maybe it means stepping out and making some phone calls and, and beginning to write some relationships that you know have been made wrong by things that you've done. I, I, I don't, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to run through the list of all the possibilities, but I, I encourage you as we play and as we sing to do business with the Lord tonight. Father in heaven, God, thank you for these young people. We thank you ultimately for your scriptures, for the, the, the example of Jesus on the cross and what, what, in, what an incredible act of obedience. Now, the incarnation to come and to leave, leave the glory and grandeur of heaven to come and to, to take on the human constraints and the, and the, the limitations of humanity. God, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that we have a representative in Jesus who, who, who truly not only sees where we are, not only hears where we are, God, but that understands and can relate, that represents us to the Father. And God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for your grace. Lord, if there are those here tonight who don't know Jesus in this way, I ask that your Holy Spirit would not permit them to leave until they've taken a friend by the hand or one of our adults and, they've, and they've, they've, they've seen for themselves the truth of your scriptures. They've seen for themselves, the, the, they've experienced for themselves the forgiveness that is available. God, I just pray that you would, you would illuminate our hearts and our souls and our spirit tonight. Help us to see areas in which we fail you on a constant basis where we've, we've taken the process into our own hands. And God, ultimately I pray that you would, you would break us and wreck us. But you deconstruct all the bad decisions, all the mistakes, all the times and, and periods in our life where we've, where we've misplaced our faith, where we've, we've, we've simply not trusted you and build us into what you desire us to be. Thank you for being a God who sees us and hears us tonight. In Jesus' name.